Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to episode 124 of That's So Second Millennium. So Bill and I have uh, have already been talking a lot this morning. We'd like to bring you just a short podcast today, really kind of uh, building off of uh, our previous episode where we talked to Dr. Jean-Pierre Isbouts about the uh, the history of Jesus, the political and uh, to some degree the economic and therefore the the geomorphology, you know, you know, that comes into the economy because after all that governs agriculture. You know, where where is the land? How much does it rain? Little details like that. It makes a difference. Um, so at some point, the preparation for that, I, I asked him whether he would want to talk about the geology per se, and he sort of, you know, he probably very correctly uh, demurred and said, no, that's, 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 I mean, he's, he's already got a lot of specialties, doesn't he, Bill? <laughs> that's right. He brings together an awful lot of disciplines already. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was perhaps a little too much to ask, uh, to add one more into the pile there. Um, but just as just as someone who does have a degree or two in geology and just an interest in the subject matter, uh, I thought it would be great to take an episode to talk just a little bit about the contacts between geology and, and the Old Testament. You know, as we were discussing earlier, I don't know if this book exists or if this book needs to exist, but uh, I think there's a there's a real need for a book that really takes you know the best textual scholarship of you know Genesis in particular. You know, other books, Exodus, and, and there's some other, like the book of Joshua and, and places scattered here and there, um, where geologic happenings occur at significant points in the history of, you know, of, of salvation history. There we go. There's a term I'm groping for. Um, and to, to really bring, you know, people who are really knowledgeable about, uh, have a very good grasp on the geology of the Holy Land, as well as the, as well as the texts. And, you know, and, and other, you know, stories in the, in the ancient Near East that we have in written form of one kind or another. And to be able to really, you know, sort of bring those together and say, what's, what's the greatest concord that we can bring between these? Because, of course, both of, both of those records are, are inherently, you know, they're, they're not complete. Scripture is not trying to give any kind of complete rundown of all the geologic happenings in Palestine and Mesopotamia and Egypt during the times that it narrates nor is the geologic record ever perfect. It's not like, you know, the sand, silt, and clay of, uh, you know, the, the basin that the Dead Sea is in aren't, aren't motivated to give us <laughs> a complete record of <laughs> everything that happened there. Uh, so. It is beautiful that the Bible, uh, while uh, clearly focused on being a, a book of uh, faith and not of science, as Dr. Isbos said last week, uh, he, uh, um, he realizes that, uh, and you, you're stating now, that the Bible is so amazingly uh, broad and and uh, full of connections to everything else that uh, I think it would be a great way of reaching out to today's early science-minded population to say, well, you know what book you should look at more and uh, learn, learn a lot about, but also apply your own scientific knowledge to? The Bible. Yeah, I think it would attract scientists as well as people with a theological uh, frame of mind. Um, and uh, it's a great way for some people to get to know 
the story of Jesus, the story of creation, and everything in between a little better, uh, according to their own kind of inclinations and interests. Yeah, I thought that was a, I mean, he, he made the point you know, pretty emphatically uh, in his book, and I, I'm pretty sure his other books, but, you know, certainly the book uh, In the Footsteps of Jesus that we were discussing last week, um, he makes the point very emphatically that, you know, putting Jesus in his historical context is really important for understanding just, you know, the, the real import of what he was saying, as opposed to letting him sort of float in an idealized, you know, environment like, like we can do um, so easily. When we when we try to read the Bible by itself without without its context, um, and likewise, you know, looking at the context of of the geology of the Holy Land is, I think, valuable. You know, even even at the level of knowledge that I have, as I was telling Bill, I you know, I pulled I pulled about five papers. I think I read into the fourth one over the course of this week um, about different aspects of the geology of the Holy Land. I didn't find the sort of big review paper that I was really kind of hoping for, um, about the tectonics of it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, if you, if we look at it from the perspective of the Christian faith, all right, God has chosen to enact a central drama of, you know, the human race in this particular part of the world. You know, he, there's this planet that behaves in this way. I mean, like, you know, the context of, you know, when you have a scientific perspective on just how big and how old the universe is, you know, it gives us it gives us more of a sense of just how. I mean, it, I think it all comes back to that. You know, St. Paul's extremely potent words. You know that that I guess it's you know commonly understood to be a song or a a, a chant or something that that Paul reproduces in Philippians. You know. Maybe he wrote it. <laughs> He'd certainly be one of the likely candidates to write such a thing. Um, but that God, you know, the, you know, that uh, the son emptied himself in the incarnation and to, you know, to recognize the size of creation itself and the incredibly localized in time and space, you know, environment of Palestine at what we now call the first century <laughs> for just this very reason um, that this is where, you know, God took, you know, took his, you know, the transcendent, limitless, eternal God took a tiny, tiny spot in uh, in creation in this exact context. But anyway, from and the geolog geological aspect of that context is that it is at a very active plate boundary and that it's a place where dramatic things have happened in the last, you know, several tens of thousands of years, which is, you know, an eye blink of geology. Um, the entirety of human civilization is really, is really quite short in, in the perspective of just this planet. So, you know, so, so that, and, and there's, there's so many, and there are dramatic, obviously things that happen in the Bible and it's easy to, you know, we've, we've drifted into the sense, and this was going on in the ancient world, actually. I'm listening to a different book uh, on, on audio book about, the fact that ancient people discovered fossils and we really don't let ourselves think about that so much. The, the people in, in particular, the Mediterranean did actually a lot of fossil collecting. There was a certain era in the first millennium BC, like the entire, really the entirety of the first millennium BC where Greeks in particular, because of course, you know, there's more people who read Greek than anything else, <laughs> any of the other languages that were circulating back in that era. Um, 
so we know about those, and those texts have been preserved in greater numbers. We, you know, we have we're more at sea and to know what you know, say Persians or people did with them, um, ancient bones. But there's a lot actually of mammoth and mastodon and ancient rhinoceros, and they they actually milled around a lot of the Mediterranean. You know, in the last. 10 million years, let's say, it goes all, you know, she's talking about stuff that goes all the way back to what's called the Miocene Epoch, which is, gosh, if, I, if memory serves, at least 10 million years ago. And, you know, really dramatic things have happened. The Mediterranean Sea has dried up completely, you know, more than once in that time, in that time span. So it's been, it's been a salt flat that these animals could cross if they could find a little water here and there. Maybe they didn't cross it. Maybe they tried. <laughs> Maybe they tried and died of thirst. That's a good way to become a fossil. <laughs> Not necessarily an easy to find fossil if they're now at the bottom of the Mediterranean, but but yeah. So the, and then you know, of course, you know, landscapes have been changing. There have been landslides, which are great things to capture um, large animal bones in. But the but the Greeks, for example, and other peoples as well. But the Greeks would find these massive bones, and they you know they and they've turned to stone. They've been lithified. And so what did they make of them? In a lot of cases, they, you know, so they're mammal bones. They don't look like anything too obvious, you know, in terms of like matching known creatures. And, and the Greeks didn't know anything about elephants until late in the first millennium. So the, the logical thing to do if you found, you know, mammoth bones in 800 BC was to say, well, maybe these are, maybe these are some giant hero. And, and at some point the, the idea came about that humans and other creatures were all larger in the past. So we have, you know, we, we're, we're the lesser descendants of the great ancients. That actually, that belief goes a long way back. It's, it's kind of an interesting um, perspective. And even the medievals still had that perspective in some ways that, you know, the civilizations before them were greater than they were um, in certain senses. Certainly they could look back at the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire itself looked back at earlier, you know, maybe in some cases imaginary um, situations where, you know, there were, there were these, there were people 15 feet tall, the heroes of great myths were these giants and they fought giants and they killed giants and buried giants all over the Mediterranean. And so places, you know, these, these bones would be found. So it's a, it's a dramatic landscape from that perspective. Um, and then the Holy land itself, Palestine, Israel um, is itself. I mean, so it's, you know, the Dead Sea is there. And, you know, so what's famous about the Dead Sea? This is, this is a question for Bill. Is, uh, Bill is taking the place of the rest of the audience here. <laughs> he, he speaks on your behalf. <laughs> this, is, this is my attempt to sort of gauge what you know, knowledge is out there among educated people in the public. I'll take geography for 400, Alex. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I think the Dead Sea is below sea it is very far below sea level. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's the, it's the spot on the earth's surface that is, that's not covered with ocean. That is the furthest below sea level. There is no, there are a few other places that are below sea level. There, the, the, there's a special tectonic, uh, feature going on the salt. Well, I mean, there's, there's death Valley in California. I'm sure if the Salton sea is actually below sea level or not, which is in Southern California. But I think the the Salton Sea. It's, so if you imagine a plate boundary with a transform fault, so two piece, two plates are sliding next to each other. One sliding past the other. That's that's a transform boundary. So the Dead Sea is along a such a boundary. So there's 
the African plate, which um, which includes a lot of the Mediterranean basin. And then there's the actually Arabian plate is actually separate from the Eurasian plate. And so that is, there's a, there's a slippage between them on a north to south plate boundary. And what happens is that plate boundary isn't straight. So if you're trying to have this curve and then there are these two plate boundaries are trying to slide past each other, there's, there's a spot where they're bunching up on one side and then there's a spot where they're sort of pulling apart and leaving a hole on the other side. So that's sort of what is, what is the, gosh, I'm groping for the exact term. I had it uh, a few minutes ago, but it's a pull apart basin. I don't know if that's, I don't remember if that's the exact term or if it's just one of the, if it's one of the legitimate terms, but that is one of the few ways that you can get land that's significantly below sea level is so there, there's this, this basin that's opened up along this transform fault. And then there's, um, there's also structures that are called grobbins, which are just sort of like troughs of the earth that are dropping because the area is under tension. You know, the plates are spreading apart. And that's so the Jordan flows in such a structure that's, that's bounded by faults on both sides. So it's really a dramatic geologic landscape. And so that, you know, so this whole area that's below sea level and then right next to it is some, you know, there's a big... Um, what would it be in uh, in feet? Probably four or five thousand foot elevation change. Not huge, but you know, from below sea level to significantly above sea level, which is where, say, Jerusalem is, the highlands of Judea, the hill country of Judea, as we as we translate it in the gospel. So there's that big, you know, so that low lying desert. You know, it's in the rain shadow of these hills. You know, so the the, the air from the Mediterranean can't make it that far. Um, yeah, so it's it's really a dramatic landscape with a lot of change. You know, and Ben Doctor has about you know uh, alluded to this that there there are these big changes in in different landscapes. You know, Galilee and then the Great Valley between Galilee and and uh, Judea, so to speak, um, southern southern Israel, and then and then there's you know southern Israel looks like that. It has these highlands. It's got a fertile area near the coast, and then it has this desert near the Dead Sea and extending you know, well south into what's called the Negev, um, which is very, very dry indeed. And that, you know, then that extends down toward the Sinai and then you're into Egypt. So, so that's, that's, you know, that's by itself a, you know, and that's a dynamic environment. What do you see as uh, some interconnection between uh, that environment, especially as geology and uh, meanings that can be drawn uh, spiritually or philosophically, uh, from uh, from uh, you know, the, the Bible and its, uh, and its uh, stories. Well, it's it's definitely a place where the sort of dramatic things that we occasionally see happen in the Old Testament are likely to happen. I mean, it's a place where you know during the ice ages there were massive floods. I mean, and we had we had that sort of thing in North America as well. There. Um, even in Indiana. So one, at one time, Lake Erie was so large that it extended all the way to Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne, Indiana, if those of you who are familiar with the, you know, the geography of northern Indiana and Ohio or southwest Michigan. So it's, you know, Lake Erie was much, much bigger. And there's kind of a ridge there at Fort Wayne. And so the water broke through this ridge and created a flood. You know, so there was, there was massive flooding there. There was massive flooding um, in the Kankakee, which is northwest Indiana. 
So there was another place where there was sort of a, a barrier that had been bulldozed into place by the glaciers. And then as they receded, it held water until the water broke through and created a you know, fairly catastrophic flood. Um, same thing has happened out in Washington state. There's what they call the channeled scablands out there. Um, and then this, this huge basin in the Holy Land, likewise, has had a history of catastrophic flooding. Could that be related to the story that we know as Noah's flood? Yeah, I suppose that's conceivable. I've, I've heard that connection you know, mentioned as a potential, but that's, that's really all I could tell you at my own you know, level of knowledge about that. But it's, you know, again, it's a place where dramatic things can happen. Another potential connection that I've heard in the past, actually, there's a, there's a book called, another National Geographic book, actually. <laughs> I guess we're, we're doing a lot of, uh, you know, product placement for National Geographic this month. But um, <laughs> they put out some good books. There's a book from the 80s, uh, so they're probably not actively printing it anymore, but it's an excellent book called Exploring Our Living Planet, which is where I learned most of what I knew about plate tectonics as a teenager. Uh, and it's a great book. It's a fantastic book. It has a history of, you know, how the ideas of plate tectonics came to be in the post-war era. And then, you know, and then it takes you on a tour of the world into all these different tectonic environments, including the Holy Land. And so it talks about some of these issues. Um, it talks about, so the, the plagues in Exodus, some of the plagues in Exodus could have been due to volcanic fallout. There's even been, you know, so people have speculated that there was, a, a giant eruption in the Aegean, in the Eastern Mediterranean, maybe it's actually the island of Santorini specifically, might have been at the right time to be associated with all those really dramatic uh, geologic events that seem to be alluded to in the book of Exodus. So in particular, you know, a certain kind of ash fall could make the river look red, the Nile River look red, where it turns into blood. Um, and then And then the potential for either a tsunami, you know, starting in the Mediterranean, I guess, potentially um, crossing into the Red Sea or an earthquake in the Red Sea. Uh, of course, the Red Sea itself is susceptible to earthquakes. Um, so the, the, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, that itself could be a, you know, that could have been a, a you know, story that has a geologic basis that, you know, would be fitting in a tectonically active environment like that. Um, that could have been the mechanism by, by which that happened. I mean, you know, of course the, the book of Exodus does actually specifically mention a wind associated with it. You know, that's, you know, that, that goes beyond my ability to speculate about, but, uh, but yeah, the idea that that, some of that could happen. And then there, you know, it's, it's a frequent enough thing. Um, I'm told, you know, actually this, this book that I just mentioned, I believe is where I heard it. You know, so, so this, you know, the Jordan River flows in this basin that's defined by faulting. Actually, the Mississippi River flows in the basin that's, you know, was defined by the, the continent of North America. Sometimes continents will start to split apart and then not sort of follow through. So the Mississippi River actually flows in a rift where a continent started to sort of come unsowed um, and then didn't follow through, probably during the time when Pangaea was breaking up. So North America started to rip there and that area subsided and got low. Um, and now of course it's that, that rift basin is, is very full of sediment. Um, likewise, the Jordan river is flowing in this, in this basin, in this, you know, deep graben with, you know, faults on either side where it's dropping down into the earth basically. And so that's a great environment for, first of all, there are earthquakes because there are faults. 
Um, and in fact, there was a magnitude six-ish earthquake in Jericho back in the 20s. That's, you know, the last, you know, really severe earthquake in that area. Um, and so, well, Jericho will come up in a second. But, um, but so in the, in the book of Joshua, so Moses has just died. The, the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving the, the children of Israel their farewell address. They're across the Jordan River in what's now Jordan. Um, that part of what's now Jordan was the land that was inhabited by the Moabites, if memory serves. So Moses is up on this mountain. He gets to look at the Holy Land, but he's, gosh, God was so demanding at that point, right? (laughs) Moses makes one little mistake at some point. He's like, I don't know if God is really going to work another miracle for these ungrateful, you know, jack wagons. And apparently that's enough to mean that he's not going to get to see the Holy Land. You know, he's not going to get to step into the Holy Land himself. He's going to get to see it, but he won't step into it. Um, so he has to hand over command to Joshua. So at the beginning of the book of Joshua, well, we got across the river. And so, of course, you know, God shuts the river down for them. <laughs> I mean, that's easy, right? The, the Red Sea, and this probably wasn't the whole Red Sea. It was probably just, you know, one of the narrow arms at the north end of the Red Sea that was you know, presumably what the Israelites crossed, but... Um, but the Jordan, you know, but the Jordan gets dammed by uh, landslides from earthquakes. Sometimes that's that's a known thing, you know. And potentially, when uh, the prophet Elijah and Elisha are crossing the Jordan at some point, you know, potentially that's that's describing a similar situation where there's an earthquake, there's steep slopes, there's a landslide. Landslides can block rivers until the river sort of roars, it's you know, cuts through it and then rushes back into place. Again, dynamic environment where dramatic stuff happens. Um, likewise, you know, not too long after that in the book of Joshua, you know, so now we're taking over the Holy Land. And so one of the first places they encountered was the city of Jericho, which is a very ancient city, multiple generations of walls built around it. Um, and so with the story that the, uh, the book of Joshua tells is that the Israelites circled these, you know, really, you know, apparently very serious fortifications and blew their trumpets and the walls fell down. Another thing that might happen during an earthquake, <laughs> an unusually large earthquake, um, an, an unusually ta- an unusually large, well-timed earthquake could actually explain a number of these things. So whether it was, you know, one series of earthquakes and, you know, there, there may be a, a couple of large aftershocks or maybe it all happened at once. Um, then, you know, that's that same, uh, that same earthquake that dammed up the, uh, yeah, yeah, or aftershocks are a thing. There's no need to insist one or the other. And the foreshock, the, the main shock could have weakened the walls and the aftershock could have finished knocking them over. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Of course, the, uh, the, the sacred writer is not, you know, doesn't, doesn't exactly have, you know, a modern, like, military chronology of, and at 0830 hours, we did this. <laughs> We're not, uh, we don't have quite that level of detail. So, but yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's so many things that, you know, the thing I think to avoid, probably a good place to wrap up for this week, the thing I think we really ought to avoid that, you know, the late second millennium sort of fell into the habit of doing is assuming that the Bible is just made up crap, you know, because because ancient people just aren't trustworthy. They were dumb. They were untrustworthy and they just made up crap. And I think that's something that Dr. Isbout's, you know, work kind of tells against. And it's just a bad idea to carry around with you in general. You know, this idea that we're superior to the ancients and we, we know what's actually going on. And those 
old, stupid, superstitious, homophobic, you know, fill in however many blanks you need to fill in, racist, etc. They can't be trusted. We, there's there's no wisdom to be gained from anything earlier than I don't know what would it, what would you have to place it at 2010 or something when people started you know supporting gay marriage in droves you know whatever whatever you know your goalposts your trailing 10 year goalposts that there there weren't any people worth listening to prior to 10 years in the past or something like that which was certainly the case in the 1960s right that was already that pattern was already set so. That's right. All those people are way over thirty at this point, and therefore they can't yeah. be trusted. So, but yeah. Oh, amen. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> well, no, I like the idea that uh, science, you're using science to explain it um, without uh, challenging the uh, the religious. Uh, beliefs and the, uh, the religious understandings, and in fact, you're, you're heightening the religious interpretation and deepening the religious interpretation by, uh, by uh, explaining in scientific terms uh, some, of the, uh, some of the things that have uh, puzzled people or caused people to dismiss the Bible. Uh, that's a perfect combination of science and, and religion. Yeah, I mean, and, and you can you can let the science challenge the religion if and when that becomes necessary, but recognizing that that's very often not the case. You know, in, in many cases, it's just a question of actually looking at it long enough to see where the where the possible uh, concord could be, rather than just sort of dismissing it. You know, based on right. what I personally carry in my head and what I personally think is plausible. Well, I salute you. That's a, I think it's a great uh, grounds for uh, projects and research and just uh, avocational fun coming uh, forth in your uh, in your geological knowledge. <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like I think this book would be great. I'm not really the person to to contribute, you know, a lot of the direct uh, subject matter to it. Maybe I could just encourage other people to uh, to do so, but. Uh, yeah, or maybe the book is out there, and I just need to go find it and read it. That's right. A lot of times, it's just bringing yeah. people together. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so much, so much, so, so much in human endeavor happens that way. So yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, well, it's good to talk to you, Bill. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back. Uh, we're not even sure what we'll talk about next time, but uh, we're, we're working on it, and we'll we look forward to it. Nice. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSN's audio producer is Morgan Burkhart. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.